ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, I'm Selena Green. Welcome to The Country Hour, the best hour of the day. In a moment, you'll find out what kind of interest there's been in a new feedlot carcass competition here in South Australia. And are you someone who still has any working windmills on your property? We'll learn more about how vital windmills have been for the development of one major property and what's since replaced them. I don't miss it from the breakdowns or the troughs are breaking, that sort of stuff. That's probably history going by us, but we have to rely on something that's going to be efficient for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd love to hear if you still use windmills on your property or if you've replaced them and what have you replaced them with. My talkback number, 1300 891 or if you'd like to text me today, 0467 991. But first today, the federal government's proposed changes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan have passed through the House of Representatives. But Victoria remains steadfast in refusing to support them. Clint Jasper has this report. The federal government's amendments to the $13 billion Murray-Darling Basin Plan extend the deadline for water-saving infrastructure projects from 2024 to 2026 and gives Basin states until 2027 to come up with ways to contribute to the additional 450 gigalitres of environmental water. It also allows the federal government to use voluntary water purchases to meet both of these targets by removing the 1,500 gigalitre cap on buybacks and adding buybacks to the range of recovery methods for the 450 gigalitres. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek told RN Breakfast this morning... The more projects states can finish, the less water the federal government will have to purchase. What we're trying to do is uh, as little uh, of that water to be returned through buybacks as possible, and that means more time to deliver on the water-saving infrastructure projects. Ms Plebersek says the buyback cap, legislated by the Coalition in 2015, has been a handbrake on progress towards finishing the plan on time. If you look at the water that has been recovered towards the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, and I I have to say a a lot of water has been recovered, but uh, 84% of that was done when Labor was last in government. Like only 16% of all water that's been recovered has been recovered in the last decade. Effectively, this plan has stopped. And what the Victorian minister is arguing with, along with the National Party here in Canberra, is that that's just fine, that we don't need to do anything else. We can stay on the same failing track that we're on now. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek. All basin states except Victoria have backed the federal government's plan. Victorian Water Minister Harriet Shing says her state won't be signing up because it risks jobs and economic activity in basin communities. Yes, we know that previous buybacks in Victoria have caused enormous damage to communities. And and if we were to see even 100 gigalitres of additional buybacks occur from Victoria, that could mean around $140 million a year in lost agricultural production. But it's also about hundreds of job losses on farms and then on regional and rural communities. We signed up to returning water 
which wouldn't uh, in the way that it was returned cause harm to communities and we're determined to continue to do that. Tanya Plibersek says the modelling used to correlate buybacks and job losses is flawed. The bill was referred to the Senate Environment and Communications Legislation Committee, which will hand down its inquiry findings on November 8. Clint Jasper with that report. You may have heard that Australia's biggest lamb event, LAMEX, is making a return in 2024 and it will be in Adelaide. A new initiative this time around is a feedlot carcass competition. Registrations for that officially close at the end of this month. But if you were thinking of signing up last minute, you might have hit a bit of a snare. Let's go to LAMEX Chair Jason Schultz. Welcome to the Country Hour. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Glad to be here. I thought I'd follow up with you because I saw that what registrations for the carcass competition close soon to see sort of how things are going and maybe rustle up a few more entries, but uh, we don't need to because you're at capacity. Yes, that's correct. Uh, We've been absolutely uh, amazed at the uptake um, from producers for this carcass competition. Yeah, we've already reached capacity at 1,800 or 36 entries with a first from producers just to access data, uh, more comprehensive data about their lambs and also see, you know, where their flock benchmarks uh, against our peers. So across those entries that you've received, uh, give us a bit of an idea of how many producers and, and how spread out across the country they are. Yeah, so there's uh, 30, I think 31 or 32 producers that have entered entries of uh, groups of 50 lambs a couple producers have put multiple entries in because they're trying to benchmark within business, um, you know, different bloodlines or what have you. Um, it also has become truly a national competition. We thought here at LAMX when we put this competition together that it might have a few barriers with the interstaters just because of logistics and travel, but uh, we've had um, an uptake from the interstaters, a huge uptake actually, all the way from Tamworth uh, in New South Wales uh, right across to North Stirling in WA. So we've stretched from one side of the country to the other, uh, representing four states, as well as, we'll, we'll say, overseas with Kangaroo Island as well here in South Australia. So some good South Australian representation by the looks of it, but there will be quite a few who will be travelling quite a bit of distance to deliver their lambs. Definitely, definitely. So it just goes to show there is no barriers or distance when it comes to trying to learn more about your business and your genetics. Um, people are willing to uh, commit and uh, get their lambs across the country uh, to participate in this fantastic um, carcass comp. So, yeah, we've seen basically half the entries are from South Australia, which would be to be expected. But, uh, yeah, almost half have been from other states with a huge representation from uh, Western Vic, uh, which is fantastic. Um, as I said, representation from WA. We've got three entries from over there and entries from New South Wales as well. Uh, the other cool thing is we've seen great breed representation. So I think there's 16 breeds or breed makeups that will be represented in the in the competition, including you know the different mixes of crossbreds, composites, merino, so straight bred merino. Um, straight British breads, and we've also got a heritage breed that's uh, put in an entry, which is fantastic. Brilliant. So as you say, pretty thrilled and, and a good sign that people were very keen to see this uh, competition make a return. And, and all of this, you must say, these registrations, this has all come as yet no one knows what or if there's, there's going to be prize. There's, they can see value in this yeah, in any event? that's correct. So there is going to be prizes for different points of the competition. So Obviously, there's a feedlot aspect, so there'll be prizes around the group that has the 
the most average daily gain. Uh, there'll also be some um, recognition for the highest wool clip on entry to the feedlot, um, and then obviously some carcass awards as well. But to date, we haven't mentioned any prizes. We are working on some uh, pretty pretty cool prizes out the back, but nothing's been mentioned. So I think what's really nice is the fact that these producers, they've entered purely for the information, and um, I just think that's a great reflection of our industry and the attitude um, on where we're heading as, as an industry. And also, the uptake has also been around this MSA grading, which currently isn't commercially available in the sheep industry, um, mainly because of logistics around hook tracking, um, but it's something that processes are working on and it's something that we'll see in the future, much like we see in the beef industry where um, you know beef carcasses are MSA graded and then producers are paid on what they produce. So those who have successfully registered, uh, what happens from now? They, they need to have their deliveries in why uh, sometime in December you've got a date and then what's the process from there? Yeah, so we will see lambs travel across the country to be delivered to the Thornby feedlot uh, here in South Australia on December 1st, 2nd and 3rd. Uh, from there, they'll be weighed on induction. They'll be shorn. Uh, we're going to have a appraiser in the shearing shed that's going to appraise the fleeces that come off the lambs. Um, so there'll be a value that's captured on the groups. Um, and then they'll be fed for 60 days on feed all under the same environment, same ration, um, in pens side by side. And then after the 60 days, they'll go to the TFI plant at stall uh, where they've got the capabilities for MSA grading. Well, this is great news for the competition, uh, Jason. Great news to catch up with you again uh, ahead of LAMX and no doubt we'll have more chances to catch up before it's back in Adelaide next year. Yeah, thank you. And look, this is one of uh, many aspects of LAMX that's going to obviously contribute to the end event in August. 7th to 9th next year. We're really excited the way the program's coming along and, uh, yeah, hopefully between now and then we're going to see an improvement in the the lamb job and uh, set ourselves up for the next sort of five to ten years, which will be fantastic for our industry. That is Jason Schultz, who is the chair of LAMEX. It's 15 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, a trial in Pathway in the southeast has been attempting to improve nitrogen budgeting on durum crops. Finding small ways to improve and hopefully lower the amount of nitrogen used on durum will help farmers in the region to reduce emissions, as well as improving the quality of the crops. Agronomist at Elders Narracourt, Adam Hancock, says the results thus far have been promising. I guess there's two big things uh, with this project. So we're, we're sort of having a close look at our nitrogen budgeting strategy which is something agronomist does for their clients sort of helps them decide how much nitrogen goes out over a crop and so it's a, a combination of soil tests and weather forecasting and yield potentials and proteins and you know like every industry in every country around the world we're, we're sort of being put under pressure to reduce emissions and pollutants etc and and so nitrogen is one thing for growers where if, if you get it wrong there's runoff and emissions and our nitrogen budgeting is really good but there's there's a few little things in there where we're trying to improve and so this trial is having a look at our modelling for mineralisation which is where you know your soil organic carbon can contribute a significant amount of nitrogen to a crop within a growing season so if we could understand a bit more accurately that amount of contribution we can better 
apply our nitrogen fertiliser rates and timings, etc. And the other thing that we're doing with the Durham Growers Association is trying to uh, get a little bit better at predicting what the final grain protein is going to be in this wheat at a growth stage in the crop where there's still a window of opportunity to apply a late nitrogen fertiliser for the purposes of boosting grain protein, which is something that's pretty profitable for the Durham industry. And will this trial be ongoing? Will it be running again next year and and trying to improve Mm. again, or is it just for this year? Yes, on paper at the moment, it's just for this year. It has kind of continued on from a a wheat nitrogen trial that we had at Kybe last year, which was funded by Saget. And so depending on how our assessments and our results go this year, that'll kind of drive what needs further work, what uh, new questions have arisen, and then we're, we're kind of doing it year by year. Last week, a group of Durham farmers came through and, and talked to you and had a bit of a walk through the trial. What was some of their feedback? What did they have to say? Uh, yeah, we had, uh, yeah, the Durham Growers Association had their crop walk going from uh, Padsway to Caniva last Wednesday. So, yeah, we had 20 people come and visit the site, half of which were well, growers, it was it was sort of the first time that we've showcased this strategy that we're exploring where we can um, sort of do some leaf analysis perhaps to see what our final grey protein is going to be. And so the feedback was pretty encouraging. Uh, I think there's, there's quite a good premium for high-protein durum wheat as opposed to bread wheat. So we're going to have a results day with the Durham Growers Association back at Padsway on the 20th of March and uh, I think people are looking forward to it. That's Narracourt Elders agronomist Adam Hancock, and he was speaking with Elsie Adamo. Would you still use windmills on your property? They're icons of rural Australia, but they have almost vanished from the farming landscape. In the past, they played a vital role in pumping water and allowing country to be opened up for grazing. Well, Tilopia Downs, which is around 30 k's north of Caniva, just over the border in western Victoria, was one area where windmills were essential. Karen Hunt recently visited. She spoke with Tilopia General Manager Drew Maxwell and Assistant Manager Damien Ryan about the history of windmills on that property. Back in the early days, a lot of the properties didn't have power source running through them, which meant we couldn't have um, electric subbies working, so we relied highly and solely on the windmills. All the windmills had been here probably since the late 60s, so I think they were Southern Cross probably. That was probably the more popular brand. But the upkeep got quite expensive. Yeah, so as they wore out, we decommissioned them and went for the um, solar systems. In those early days, was that the only method that was available for keeping the sheep watered? Basically it was, unless we had a bit of runoff somewhere. But back in the early days, the sheep numbers were well down as well. So um, one windmill was probably good for maybe a 1,000 ewes spread over four paddocks and that sort of stuff. Were you aware of the difficulties that must have occurred to actually get these windmills up and running? Well, it would have been a, a massive job. Most of Tilopia, where we are, water's about 84 metres. We've started to drill more holes now for the subbies, but back in the early 60s, and that when this country was opened up, it would have been a massive exercise with concrete troughs, concrete tanks. Poly wasn't used, it was old green PVC and that sort of stuff, so it was, they did a very, very good job. How much would the landowners at that stage have relied on keeping those windmills going, and, and what happened when they stopped? Well, it was our major problem in later life that uh, so you'd ring the um, windmill mechanic up and it wasn't 
a hole in Sully, the windmill breaking down. If we dropped the float level or a sheep fell into the trough, it just kept on running and we had a wind drought for three or four days. That was our basically our biggest problems was relying on the wind. The windmill did break. It could be three or four days before we got it fixed, so we'd have to move all our sheep out to the next section where there was another windmill operating. Everything at that stage in terms of keeping the livestock healthy and watered was very much dependent on those windmills. They'll never die of starvation, but they'll die of thirst rapidly in a hot summer's day until they your downs. Drew, if I can come to you, over the time that you've been here, obviously the windmills now decommissioned. What's taken their place? Uh, we've put in um, anywhere from sort of 16 to 36 panel solar setups. One subby can cover a lot larger area, so pretty much takes in four windmills. What's the advantages of the solar setups? Probably the capacity and the areas, like we can do a lot, lot larger area. Although the, the sun determines on it, we, even in the winter you're still getting four hours of pumping and compared to you know, sometimes up to eight or ten hours and it's not wind affected at all. That's probably the biggest thing is um, with the windmills. If we don't have wind, you don't have water. Windmills are such an iconic part of the landscape. Do you kind of miss seeing them around? I do, in some of our spots up the northern end of this block is one on a, a large hill. There's nothing better to see the windmill ticking away with the sun setting or the sun rising and that sort of stuff. But especially with the windmill, we couldn't push it very far with the, with the solos are uh, pushing it up to six or seven or eight k's. And I don't miss it from the breakdowns or the troughs are breaking the, that sort of stuff. We don't miss them. And that's probably history going by us, but we have to rely on something that's going to be efficient for us seven, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's Damien Ryan. He's the Assistant Manager of Livestock at Tilopia Downs, ending that report from Karen Hunt. It's 22 minutes past 12. Well, before we head to the Weather Bureau, we need to find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now. For that, we're joined by John Traeger. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Quality was again extremely mixed as agents offered 527 live weight and open auction cattle. A total of 131 heifers and 287 steers made up the bulk of the offering with a smaller number of cows on offer. Competition was generally good from the usual trade process of buyers, along with limited feeder competition. Restockers were more active this week, particularly on lighter weight cattle. Villa steers gained 10 cents as they sold from 150 to 241 cents. However, Villa heifers came back 10 to 20 cents as they sold from 110 to 173 cents. Light dealing steers eased by up to 20 cents as they sold from 130 to 219 cents. Medium weights gained 10 cents as they sold from 130 to 229 cents with heavier weight selling firm from 170 to 211 cents. Yearling heifers sold 5 cents easier as they made from 100 to 199 cents a kilo. Dairy bread manufacturing steers sold from 80 to 193 cents with beef type selling from 140 to 227 cents. Grown steers eased mostly as they sold from 190 to 229 cents with grown heifers following a similar trend as they sold from 130 to 207 cents. Light dairy cows sold from 45 to 81 cents with beef types selling from 70 to 191 cents. Heavy dairy cows sold from 123 to 157 cents and beef types 120 to 201 cents. Light bulls sold from 120 to 175 cents as heavy bulls sold from 150 to 228 cents. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. 
Thanks, John. John Traeger with the latest results there from Mount Compass. You're with Selena Green on this Thursday on the Country Hour. It's time to head to the Weather Bureau and Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Selena. Well, anyone who ordered up some sunshine, uh, they're certainly getting their wish, it looks like, today again. Yeah, absolutely. We've been pretty much uh, cloud-free across most of the state. There was some low cloud uh, just about the southwest coast uh, this morning. We've also had a little bit of high cloud about uh, southern coasts and uh, Kangaroo Island. But other than that, uh, mostly cloud-free across the state. And uh, we're expecting, we do have a change at the moment that's near west, uh, sorry, the far west of the state. We are expecting that to continue to move east. So today we have seen uh, pretty warm temperatures across the state, getting up to 35 degrees so far at Sejuna. It's been up to 32 at Wyala, 31 uh, at Coopapedi so far, and 33 at Roseworthy. And uh, we do have this change bringing cooler temperatures and the winds will become a bit uh, fresh and gusty as well. So this change we're expecting to extend uh, through central and eastern parts tomorrow. We are looking at it really remaining dry apart from the slight chance of seeing a shower near western and southern coasts. There is also the chance of seeing a thunderstorm about the lower southeast. That will mainly be during the afternoon and evening period. And uh, the temperatures will be a little bit more uh, mild in the south, but we are looking at the temperatures still remaining hot in the north with those northeast to northwesterly winds ahead of that change. So having a look at some of the temperatures for tomorrow, we're expecting 21 and cloudy for Sejuna, 22 and partly cloudy at Port Lincoln, 31 at Wyala, 32 at Coopapedi, getting up to 33 at Woomera, at 37 at Renmark, 30 for Clare, 34 at Murray Bridge, 28 at Mount Barker, 26 for Victor Harbour, 24 at Kingscote and 26 also at Mount Gambia. But associated with this system, we do have a fair amount of cold air and a low-pressure system does develop on the trough, uh, pushing up further cold air over the weekend. So we are looking at the showers extending over the southern agricultural area, uh, west coasts and also the far southwest of the Flinders district. Uh, We're looking at temperatures being much cooler, so cool to mild about the agricultural area and west coast and remaining mild to warm further north. The winds will be moderate to fresh uh, southwest to southeasterly and they will be fresh to strong and gusty, particularly about the lower southeast coast as we head into the evening period on Saturday. Then on Sunday, we're looking at those uh, isolated showers continuing about uh, southern coastal districts. It'll be mainly during the morning and early afternoon period. Temperatures again quite cool uh, with those moderate southwest to southeasterly winds uh, again fresh at times near central and eastern coasts. Then as we head into Monday, we have another high pressure system that starts to move in. Uh, Conditions start to dry and we start turning our attention towards cold mornings again. So we're looking at a cold morning inland on Monday about the agricultural area with some frost patches around. Temperatures otherwise, we're looking at uh, mild conditions in the southeast, but grading to hot to very hot in the far northwest ahead of the next trough that we'll have moving into the west on Monday. Monday, extending through the state on Tuesday and Wednesday. 
Having a look at the cumulative rainfall totals until midnight on Monday, generally we're looking at less than 2 millimetres about the agricultural area and near western coasts. And there is the possibility of seeing some local falls of 2 to 10 millimetres and possibly even 10 to 15 millimetres about the lower southeast coast. Uh, but that 2 to 10 millimetres is also possible about the Mount Lofty Ranges and also Kangaroo Island. All right. Thanks for that, Hannah. I hope you get to enjoy some of the sun today. Thank you. Same to you, new listeners. Hannah Marsh there, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, both the upper and western districts are expecting sunny days with light winds becoming northeasterlies, 15 to 20 k's an hour in the morning and then becoming light by the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures will fall to around 14 degrees with daytime temperatures reaching the mid even up to the high 30s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You are with Selena Green in this next half an hour. Uh, an investigation into underpayments of those working in our ag industries and some fines handed out for South Australian employers. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Good afternoon. Great to be with you. How do you know if your employer is paying you what you're owed? If you're a seasonal worker, maybe you're employed by a labour hire firm, you move around a bit, perhaps English isn't your first language. It could be a bit harder to keep a track of. You're getting exactly what you're owed. Well, a two-year investigation by the Fair Work Ombudsman has resulted in thousands of dollars in fines for South Australian companies for underpaying those working in our ag industries. More on that in just a moment. And if you have owned a sheepskin rug or maybe some nice sheepskin car seat covers, or what was once a premium product... It's pretty much going to waste. You know, we grow a product that we know is sustainable. I don't I hate to use that word. It gets overused these days. But, you know, it's a natural product and it, it is grown in a sustainable way. And that's definitely on our side. And, and I think wool, you know, ticks all those boxes going forward as a, as a sustainable product. The case for sheepskins in this next half an hour as well. But first, let's get news headlines from Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, Australia's unemployment rate has edged lower to 3.6%, but only because fewer Australians are looking for work. The Bureau of Statistics estimates that just 6,700 jobs were created last month, which is not enough to keep up with the growth in Australia's working age population. South Australia's unemployment rate rose from 36 to 3.7% in September. The Environment Protection Authority is investigating the loss of an industrial gauge with a radioactive component. The gauge is used for measuring bin levels at the One Steel Whaler Steelworks and contains a small amount of cobalt-60. It's housed in a 50-kilogram container which has been reported lost to the steelworks, which covers an area of about 1,000 hectares on Upper Spencer Gulf. And the grandstand on Pitt Strait is just about complete in preparation for the 2023 Adelaide 500 with the arrival of a new shade structure. The assembly of the development is part of the state government's commitment to provide shade to almost 70% of seats. The event will be held from November the 23rd to 26th in Victoria Park. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, it's the Fair Work Ombudsman's two-year investigation into the treatment of ag workers has recovered more than $70,000 in underpayments and resulted in more than $300,000 in fines for employers. Now, in the Riverland, one of the 15 regions the Ombudsman has targeted across the country, close to $50,000 in infringements have been issued for payslip and record-keeping breaches. More than $42,000 of that was to labour hire companies. One investigation remains ongoing in the Riverland region. In the Adelaide area and Adelaide Hills, where two investigations are still ongoing, 16 businesses were found to be compliant, while 14 were found to be non-compliant, resulting in four compliance notices and more than $70,000 in fines over payslip and record-keeping breaches. Nationally, of the 98 infringement notices issued, 86 of those went to labour hire firms. Angus Verley spoke with the Fair Work Ombudsman, Anna Booth, about the results of this ongoing investigation. We have found a pretty mixed bag in terms of compliance. Uh, we find that's using a infringement notice. Um, um, uh, employers uh, more than $300,000, $316,000 to be precise. Um, and we've also issued 48 compliance notices and that's where we actually get recovery of money for workers and that's over 72000 and I note with that total of uh, $316,000 in fines that there were not, that included 98 infringement notices. And of those, the great majority went to labour hire entities over growers themselves. That's right. The large majority, 86 um, of the infringement notices of the 98 in total, went to labour hire entities and only 12 growers were fined. What do we read into that statistic? Uh, that uh, one of the risk factors uh, in this sector is the complex supply chain arrangements uh, that exist. Okay, where there are there can be numerous layers of employment of of, of workers. They're not necessarily right. employed directly. Yeah, Angus, you can have not just, you know, um, one contractor to a grower, but you can have um, many layers underneath that. And, uh, and and that obviously leads to lots of complexity around payments in between those entities. And of course, the workers are at the bottom of the pile. When inspectors go into these regions and inspect businesses and employers, what are some of the things, those red flags that they're looking for that may indicate non-compliance? One of the reasons why there's so many infringement notices that we've discovered in this particular round um, is that there are many um, employers who are not keeping correct records um, and not issuing pay slips. And of course, these are the bedrock of workplace compliance. You can't actually find out how much somebody ought to have been paid if you don't have the records. And workers can't identify their own entitlements if they don't have correct pay slips. And with with that poor record keeping, for example, how much of it is is deliberate, and how much of it is, I suppose, just uh, uh, slack record keeping? Look, I think this is an area um, where it is hard to forgive um, in terms of uh, of saying that it's an accident. Um, uh, you know, I, I realise that administration is not something that any of us uh, really enjoy doing. But if you've taken the responsibility and also the benefit, uh, the profitability that comes uh, from being an employer, then you do have to take on the obligation of the record keeping.
We're about a year and a half on now from that uh, introduction of, of minimum wages for fruit pickers, uh, where previously they could have been paid less than the minimum wage on, on peace rates. Uh, are employers doing the right thing in that space? Uh, we are finding still um, a, a, a number of um, agreements that aren't um, recognising the minimum guarantee. Of course, peace rates themselves are still lawful, uh, but uh, you do have to have a minimum income um, underneath the uh, peace rates and we are finding that there are agreements issued to um, employees that do not include that. Are there particular demographics who are being underpaid? And, and I'm thinking here, obviously, a lot of people working in this space are on, on visas, perhaps limited English, perhaps concerns about their residency status. Uh, are those the sorts of people most susceptible to exploitation? As well as the complex supply chains, which I indicated were a risk factor, um, the other risk factor is the vulnerability of the workers. So there are a number of workers um, in this sector who are visa holders, uh, who are also um, migrant workers um, who um, have language barriers. And so they are often either unaware of their rights or they are unwilling to speak up about their rights for fear um, of jeopardising their job. Um, and that is a, it's an enduring uh, priority um, of the Fair Work Ombudsman is to pay attention to sectors where there are a lot of vulnerable workers because the fear factor plays into the underpayments. Is there a power imbalance there then in that if we look at a worker maybe on the palm scheme, they're here to earn desperately needed money for their family or perhaps it's a backpacker here and they're needing to earn money and serve their 88 days of farm work to, to earn a second visa. Uh, does that mean that the employer, that they're just ripe for exploitation and that they'll do whatever the employer asks of them because they're worried about being deported? I do need to stress, Angus, that this particular agricultural strategy doesn't include the PALM scheme. It's a, a separate um, scheme and we do have uh, some regulatory responsibility there, but this one is the general agricultural strategy that we have. But I think your, your greater point stands and that is that uh, these are workers who are particularly vulnerable if they are on a visa. They do fear uh, losing their visa status and in that regard it's important uh, to to remind everybody um, of uh, the assurance protocol that exists between the Fair Work Ombudsman and the Department of Home Affairs, which means visa holders who have permission to work and come to the Fair Work Ombudsman for help can do that without fear of visa cancellation, even if they've breached work-related visa conditions. That total of 98 infringement notices across a couple of years leading to the sum total of $316,000 in fines. I mean, rough yep. maths, that's not much more than $3,000 per infringement notice. Uh, that doesn't sound like much of a deterrent. Well, of course, the infringement notice um, quantum uh, is going to be affected by um, the actual uh, fine um, amounts that are available for infringement notices, because remember, that's a fine rather than recovery. And with um, an infringement notice, there's an amount of, uh, this is a little detailed amount, if you'll uh, forgive me, $1,878 per contravention for an individual and $9,390 per contravention 
for a, a body corporate. So we're limited by the fines that um, you know are available to us. And are you content with the fine caps available to you? Uh, look, we are welcoming um, the changes uh, that are coming uh, to um, fines if indeed the legislation that's before the parliament is passed. We do think that higher fines provide a, a specific deterrent and also a general deterrent, uh, but we obviously always work within the legal framework that's available to us at the time. You mentioned the, the Sunraysia or Mildura region specifically being one of those areas with poor compliance. And I think uh, of the businesses you looked at, 37 non-compliant, only 16 compliant. That that seems extraordinary. Well, it is a ratio that uh, would be better uh, the other way around, that's for sure. But uh, we we go and find what we find, and that is what we found in Sunraysia. That was the Fair Work Ombudsman, Anna Booth, and she was speaking there to Angus Verley. It's 19 minutes to one. Well, is there enough being done to protect ag workers from being underpaid. Tim Kennedy is the National Secretary of the United Workers Union. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Selena. We've heard a bit about the wrap-up of the investigation by the Ombudsman and some of the uh, the results that they've found. Are you surprised at all to hear of uh, that amount of non-compliance being found uh, amongst employers and labour hire firms? No, we're not surprised. Uh, we're probably surprised that more wasn't uncovered, uh, We've known for some time, we've been working in this area for more than a decade, that uh, wage theft in both the agriculture and the horticultural areas is systemic. Uh, the only thing that we think has kind of caused it to abate somewhat in some areas is the pandemic had an impact uh, and also the activity of you know workers' union has challenged a lot of it and some of the matters in the Fair Work Officer report are matters that we've referred to them. So... We think that it's still a systemic issue. What is it about agricultural work and those who work in it in particular that makes them particularly vulnerable to this type of thing? So I think it's the nature of the industry and the type of workforces they are seeking. So the type of workforces they are seeking are highly insecure, casual and in historical terms itinerant. And so there's great opportunities for employers not to provide pay slips, not to advise of pay, to make illegal deductions from people's pay in the provision of transport and accommodation and other ancillary matters. So it's rife uh, for abuse. And it's also been a model on which, to be quite frank, our fresh food supply chain has been built. And and the penalties for it uh, are kind of factored in because if employers are brought to account... Uh, then the cost to them in making good generally is a, a minuscule amount to what they've saved. And what it does is it forces the good players in this area with no other option than to participate to some degree. Then how can it be stamped out? Obviously, in this case, we've seen the Ombudsman hand out a number of uh, fines for uh, those who found to be non-compliant. I mean, is that enough of a deterrent or does more need to be done to to try and stop this from happening? No, it's clearly not a deterrent and the Ombudsman is not resourced in order to deal with this problem. Uh, this is a modern problem that didn't exist a long time ago uh, when you had uh, workers through their unions having an active role in the workplace. They were a strong cop on the beat in being in workplaces, making certain that the discussions about time and wages, that's not there anymore. 
this can't be solved by the Fair Work Ombudsman. We do note that a major change is proposed by the federal government in their closing loopholes legislation or proposed legislation where they'll make wage theft an important element of that piece of legislation. We have a situation in Australia, Selena, that if you steal from your boss, that's a criminal offence. But when the boss steals from you, that is not a criminal offence. And I think the proposed uh, legislation from the federal government about wage theft will concentrate employers' minds and hopefully there'll be meaningful remedies if people want to continue down the path of wage theft. Tim Kennedy, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour today. Uh, No worries. Thank you, Selena. Tim Kennedy is the National Secretary of the United Workers Union. Takes us up to 15 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Were you someone who's ever owned a sheepskin car seat cover or maybe a sheepskin floor rug? These items were once the height of luxury, but some processors are actually charging farmers a fee to send their skins to landfill. And it has industry representatives concerned about a premium product going to waste. Eliza Berlage has the story. Sheep producer Jason Gordon from Caniva in Western Victoria received more than $30 a piece for his skins a decade ago. These days, he's only receiving a couple of dollars or being charged a disposal fee. This year we've seen fee disposal for skins as it's obvious that the works can't get their skins to be bought by anyone. So we've had prices range from the top price for merino skins off a 28 kilo carcass of $3 to two weeks beforehand the same draft of lambs averaging the same weight for a fee disposal of $3 and some skins that were a bit longer a fortnight before that made 45 cents. So not only is it frustrating that we're not getting any money for them, it's very, very frustrating that we don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a negative $3 or a positive $3? Those same sort of skins, so I've got up to $30 for. I got $32.50 for some skins about a decade ago and If you look at the price of lamb then, I'd say that we're talking about 10% of the value of our sheep was taken up in a skin. So now it's a negative impact. And it's just one of those little things that creeps into your bottom line, taking it away from, from how much you make. Rather than let his skins go to waste, Mr Gordon has been retrieving his skins from processors to have them tanned and turned into blankets. Ourselves, and and I know a few other producers, have done the same thing, but we've got some lamb skins made and uh, like tanned in Australia. Actually just uh, delivered some the other day to a a sick friend and that's uh, bedridden at the moment. So those natural lamb skins... They're so soft, and when they're processed in Australia with our high environmental standards, not processed in China or somewhere where they can use chemicals that our grandfathers weren't allowed to use, but processed here in an environmentally friendly way, they are the most beautiful skins and leather you are ever likely to touch or feel. Western Victoria sheep producer Jason Gordon. Luke Kivligan is the Vice President of the Australian Hide, Skin and Leather Exporters Association. He says his company has been saving thousands of skins a week from landfill. Well, we, we are concerned. We're trying to, or my company especially, we're trying to take as many skins as we can. Yes, they're, they're coming in at a negative, but um, 
you know, rather than putting them in a hole, my company's got an agreement with the company in China who are, who are taking them. Unfortunately, I mean, they're taking them at nothing, but they're not going into a hole or into a landfill. They're going to China and you know, having a use over there. So um, if we can get them to China or to somewhere, you know, rather than putting in the landfill, that would be the ideal position. But, you know, some of them are, you know, if they've been recently shorn and there's nothing on them and things like that, there is absolutely no value in them. Mr Kivligan says rising operating costs for tanneries and changing consumer trends has contributed to the downturn. 20, 30 years ago, it was a fashionable item, you know, to have a sheepskin jacket, especially in colder climates and, you know, colder countries, you know, uh, Russia and different places. It was essential, but unfortunately, with fashion changing and, um, you know, synthetics coming on the market, people thinking synthetics are wonderful, but uh, not realising how much energy and how much different things go into producing that. We've got a beautiful natural product that isn't being fully utilised, unfortunately. Yeah, and with, I suppose, sheepskin car seat covers and things like that, you know, I suppose you're putting that over sort of uh, almost vinyl seats and things. And I think the automotive trade now is, you know, you can have leather seats and different things like that. So, you know, a lot of our uses that we had have sort of... um, slipped away a little bit. Vice President of Australian Hide, Skin and Leather Exporters Association, Luke Kivligan. In August, Thomas Foods International joined other meat processors in charging livestock producers a dumping fee for their sheep and lamb skins. Paul Leonard is the National Livestock Manager of the South Australian-based company. He says the disposal fee is a temporary measure. Unfortunately, skins have followed a similar pattern, if you like, to protein, albeit they're a completely different article, but with skins I mean, you know, the world has changed there's more synthetic options available these days that people aren't as reliant on skins and probably as, or hides as what globally is what they used to be. Mr Leonard says the value of some skins has remained steady. It's really only has affected, you know, a small percentage of the skins, so I think that needs to be made clear. It would only affect currently probably 10 to 15% of the skins that we are processing and those being really just the really freshly shorn sheep or up to about five or six weeks off shears and outside that really only those really broad type crossbred lamb skins. So it doesn't affect a, a typical white Suffolk or a, that type skin but if you get into those very very broad composite type lambs it has affected them. Paul Leonard, National Livestock Manager of Thomas Foods International. Endeavour wool market analyst Josh Lamb says the depressed wool market and oversupply of livestock has worsened the issue. I think it's a similar similar problem to, to, to wool in one way where the demand's not there but the, the quantity of sheepskins available has far outstripped any demand. You know, the wool side of it, we not so much a supply issue, it's more a demand issue, but in sheepskins, um, from what we were told in China recently, there's just too many of them. So a lot of sheepskins go to China and they actually get shorn. They have big factories there that they shear the wool off them, but of course the demand's not there for the wool at the moment either, and that's obviously flowing back to the, the values that sheepskin traders can, can trade out of here for. Mr Lamb says while it's not a short-term solution, the sheepskin market may benefit in the future from growing environmental concerns in the fashion and textiles industry. I think it will medium to long term, but the, the, the issue at the moment is you know, global economy in general. We've got to sort that out first. But, but what you said is definitely, definitely on our side, medium to long term, where we, you know, we grow a product that we know is 
you know, sustainable. I don't I hate to use that word. It gets overused these days, but, you know, it's a natural product and it, it is grown in a sustainable way and that's definitely on our side. And, and China increasingly is talking more and more about carbon footprints and, and tracing carbon through the wool supply chain as well. So, you know, Europe's been doing that for a long time, but China's starting to do it as well. And I think wool, you know, ticks all those boxes going forward as a, as a sustainable product. That report by Eliza Berlage and uh, that was Endeavour Wool Market Analyst Josh Lamb ending that story from Eliza with Angus Verley as well. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the Royal Flying Doctor Service does a vital role in our regional communities, but uh, their services, and that includes their staff and their patients as well, can all be impacted by South Australia's fickle weather. So hopefully a new RFDS dedicated patient transfer facility at the Renmark Airport, which I understand is the second of its kind in South Australia, will help crews manage whatever comes their way. We're going now, hopefully with the wonders of technology, to the tarmac of the Renmark, Renmark Airport, Timu King is there. Hi, Timu. Hello, Selena. It's looking gorgeous out here today. Weather's really turned up for the gathering, and we're seeing about easily over 100 people here. There's a huge range of stakeholders, um, people from RFDS, uh, emergency services, and the community itself. Uh, I'm joined by Peter DeCure, who's the chairman of the RFDS board serving South Australia and the Northern Territory. Uh, thanks for your time today, Peter. Uh, what does it mean to see so much, such a great turnout today? Uh, good day, Tim. It's fantastic to see a great community turnout here. The facility that we're opening today has been funded entirely by the community. The local RFDS auxiliary group has spent years raising money to this end. Uh, they've been helped out by generous individual and corporate donors to deliver uh, an outstanding first-class facility. The facility means so much to the community because we're flying in and out of here every day, um, bringing patients to and from hospital in town. To be able to have those patients transferred from plane to ambulance or ambulance to plane in controlled environment conditions is the safest thing for the patient. Uh, and in today's world, the ability to provide appropriate and decent working conditions for our team is critical. Um, we've got our AGM here as well as the opening today, so it's a great opportunity for our board to be out in the community with the people that we serve. What was the state of play before this facility was opened? Um, it was really simple. The ambulance would drive up to the gate and rain, hail or shine. Our plane would land and our team would transfer the patient through the rain, hail or shine from the ambulance through the gate onto the tarmac and into the plane. Now, that's great on a nice sunny day like today, but sometimes there are delays. Uh, the plane might be here in 10 minutes or the ambulance might be five minutes early. Um, they can, you know, in these regional places, as you know, weather conditions can be extreme. And it's probably not ideal for someone who's in such a vulnerable state. The, the transfer, moving the patient is the most dangerous thing for them. Uh, you know, you're at your safest in an ambulance, in an RFDS plane or in a hospital. It's the getting you between those places that's really dangerous for a patient. And finally, I believe this is the second of its kind in South Australia. Yeah, this is the second of our facilities in South Australia. We've opened one about 18 months ago in um, Mount Gambier. We're currently building uh, in Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory, and we're also in the middle of building a health care clinic in William Creek. Uh, we have a, a plan for more of these facilities around South Australia and the Northern Territory. As soon as we can raise the money, we'll get building. And are these... Um 
organisations and those facilities also community funded. Uh, every Our entire capital program is community funded, whether it be this sort of facility or our aeroplanes uh, or our ambulances. So we're heavily community funded. Um, the people keep us in the air to, to help look after them uh, and it's a great privilege to be able to do so. Thanks for your time for that, Peter. I think you've got an AGM to go run. I have got an AGM starting in 30 seconds. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Timu. Timu King there crossing to us live from the Renmark Airport. And, yes, uh, they're only just a few minutes away from uh, that actual event kicking off. So we appreciate the uh, their time there. But, uh, yeah, fantastic to have uh, the second-of-its-kind facility opened here now in South Australia, this uh, dedicated patient transfer facility at the Renmark Airport. As you heard, the first of those is at the Mangambian District Airport, which is, funnily enough, just down the road from where I'm broadcasting from today. And I can tell you, um, and anyone who's lived in the southeast long enough can tell you that uh, there are plenty of rainy days. And the last thing you want is patients uh, sitting out in those weather conditions, waiting for uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service a plane to come and uh, collect them. So great facilities and uh, great now to have at least two of these set up here in South Australia for regional patients. Uh, hello to our texters who have been texting in on the line about uh, Australian sheep skins and those products. Uh, one says, where can you buy Australian-made lamb skins? Too hard to find. Well, they shouldn't be hard to find. Uh, absolutely. If you want to buy Australian and support Australian, when us wool lambskins used to have Aussie Ugg boots, where have they gone as well? Uh, it is coming up to one o'clock. Sonia Feldhoff will be with us very shortly to let us know what's coming up on her program this afternoon. Music's one of the most beautiful ways of telling stories. Hi, Zan Rowe here. My Take 5 series is back with a brand new season. This song has a special place in my heart. I'll ask Noel Gallagher, Natalie Imbruglia, Jimmy Barnes, Mark Cole-Smith, G Flip and Lin-Manuel Miranda to share five songs that have shaped their life. Music was everything. Season 2 of Take 5 with me, Zan Rowe. I'm there. Tuesday nights on ABC TV and ABC iView. Now, if you would like to catch up on more great rural news throughout the afternoon and any time of the day, uh, head to our website, which is abc.net.au forward slash rural. There's a lot of great uh, content on there at the moment. You may have heard about uh, the closure of Glencore's copper mine uh, in Mount Isa. There's a bit of a write-up there about uh, well, what impact that is likely to have on residents of that community, uh, as, well as well as a lot of great ABC content, and you can also find plenty of that on the ABC Listen app, which is a free app you can go download right now onto your smartphone. You can listen back to the Country Hour as well via that app. Hello and good afternoon, Sonia Feldoff. Hello, hello, hello. Now, I don't know what podcast got you into listening to podcasts, but for many people it was The Teacher's Pet, mm. a something like four-decade almost murder mystery uh, in Australia's beach suburbs. Uh, it was the work of Hedley Thomas, um, an Australian journalist, and he was very much the driver and at the centre of bringing this story to our minds. He's now released a book on that whole situation, the subsequent trial and the fact that Crystal Dawson is now in prison, charged with Lynette Dawson's murder. He's going to be my guest on the program. I'm fascinated and really looking forward to speaking with him about that one. Will be a fascinating chat and a fascinating podcast. Have a great show. Thanks, Sonia. Thank you. Sonia Feldoff. Those stories and more on her program this afternoon. I've been Selena Green. Thanks for your company. News time. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.